0: to take another 15% off of this course. And uh, we can't wait to see you there. Agile for Humans is brought to you by Audible.com. Get one free audiobook and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash agile. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android,
1: Kindle, or MP3 player, including Scrum, The Art of Doing Twice the Work in Half
0: the Time by Jeff Sutherland, and Crucial Conversations by Carrie Patterson. Visit www.audibletrial.com forward slash agile to enjoy your free audiobook today. Processes
1: and tools dominate today's agile discussions, but we are devoted to the individuals
2: and interactions that make it work. From the beginner to the veteran practitioner, we have something for you. Welcome to Agile for Humans.
1: All right, welcome to this week's episode of Agile for Humans. I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. Joining me tonight, a fellow co-host who's joined us a number of times, Amitai Schleyer. Amitai, how you doing?
2: Ahoy! Good to be here. This week, as usual during the week, I am in Dearborn, Michigan.
1: Also joining us tonight, we have a a very special guest, a uh, well-known person in the Agile community, Mr. Arlo Belshi. Arlo, how are you doing tonight?
3: Hey, doing pretty good.
1: So, Arlo, you're well-known for Promiscuous Pairing, a paper on pair programming a number of years back, more recently as a consultant with Industrial Logic, another ILer. What else has been going on lately, and uh, what, have you been, what have you been working on?
3: Uh, so, yeah, I work on helping people get better one little increment at a time, um, doing that at the code level, doing that at the cultural level, doing that in the team structural level, um, And so, yeah, there are a variety of topics to talk around that. But scaled continuous improvement, big fan of big scale. And uh, refactoring and legacy code, big fan of uh, getting into the the gnarly, really, really good stuff. And then uh, recently been doing some stuff about changes in hiring and what it means if you're working effectively in this way, uh, what it means in terms of what you should be looking for on your team.
1: You know, I love it when the guest sets the agenda. It's yeah. so much less work for me. So why don't we just jump into it? So you brought up scaling. Yeah. And now at the big type of clients that Amitai works at, at the large corporations that I work for, I know that these are, this is, this is the topic. Mm-hmm. So everyone wants to know, it's like, fine, you got your little scrum yeah. team and, and you've done this and that, but how do we do this at, at the scale of 5,000 people? And it's, it's all, all the rage and even the frameworks. There's safe, less, Dad, and I think a, a few others that I'm missing Arlo, what are your thoughts on scaling? And uh, just what, have, what are you seeing out in the, uh, the consulting world?
3: The core essence of my approach is to understand that when you're operating at scale, you can't handle as much complexity. So you have to understand what really matters, what the core problems are going to be, and then figure out how to address those in simpler ways. So any framework which adds additional facilities and, and things to handle the problems at scale is going to be doomed to fail. They they scale to a certain level and then they all fall apart. Uh, safe is a fine example of this. It works really well up to 200 and 250 people, which I call tiny. Um, <laughs> right. And going beyond that, you have to have separate safe installations and, and you run those groups separately. But like when I was working with Office at Microsoft um, or with some of the Windows server teams, you could divide the group into like 30-person organizations, but... After 30% the next reasonable dividing was 2,500 or 5,000 people. Um, So safe installs just aren't going to (laughs) work. Right. When I start to look at the problem of scale, you really need to step back and say, well, why can't we just solve this with a whole bunch of completely independent teams? Now there there are reasons we can't, but what, what are the reasons? Presumably, I mean, if we look at this as a processing system, let's us, let's let's use the metaphor that my company exists as a system for processing data, information about the marketplace and about our customers, and turning that into insights that we will then enact in order to get cash. <laughs> um, so, if we look at that as a data processing system, what we want to do is maximize the amount of data that we can convert into insights and acquire cash with a given amount of resource. And we all know from any uh, you know any data processing system, we're all techies, the most effective way to do that is horizontal scaling, scale out. Make something very, very small, and then duplicate it a whole lot of times, and free thread it. You don't, you don't want any contention over any resource between any of those instances, make them all completely independent. So we can try and do that uh, for these big projects, and that would be you roll out, you've got 2,400 people, so you roll out 300 um, extreme programming teams because you need all the technical practice, you need to do everything right. Okay, great. So why isn't that sufficient? You know, what's, what's missing that we can't just solve it with 300 full, powerful XP teams?
1: So something that immediately comes to mind and something that I think many executives will start pointing at is governance. Yep. So when you have 300 teams operating as individual cells how do you put them all on the same set of rails to where they follow a lot of the corporate patterns that have been established?
3: Yep. Yeah. Um, so that's the co- common one that comes out. Another one that comes out is mobility, cross-team mobility. Um, another one that comes out is uh, brand similarity in the marketplace, uh, brand promises and the like. Um, and that can include like, user experience things. It can include uh, security standards. It can include a, a number of different things. So there, there are a bunch of these these good reasons. Um, if you step back and look at them, they're all the same answer. Their answer is there is something that we as a group want to have consistency on. It might be our internal code processes. It might be our HR you know, the, the way that people get promoted um, and career paths. It might be any number of things. But there's something that we want to have the consistency. Um, if we have it as a whole bunch of separate teams, then the natural result is they will all go explore different approaches. (laughs) And we won't have any consistency. Now, if we look at that, assuming that each team has reasonably good self-governance and self-improvement, which is an agile thing, XP teams, strong XP teams, get that and you can, we can assume that each team has that, because if they don't, we'll fix that problem. That's not a scale problem yet. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's just an Agile problem, right? <laughs> so go solve all those. <laughs> um, so we'll assume you already have that.
1: Um, so the first caveat is get your Agile straight and then start scaling
3: it. Yeah, yeah. Why would you try and solve a problem for 2,000 people that you can't yet solve for eight?
2: Absolutely. Because you haven't already been working in a flow model and don't realize that you don't need to do that yet. <laughs> right.
3: Yeah, I mean, there are a whole lot of reasons that that people might try and solve it in the large before the small, but none of them are valid. So we're going to ignore them all. <laughs> solve it for every group of eight. Um, yeah. So once you've solved it for all the groups of eight, um, if you have those teams that you have just developed the optimal strategy for exploration, it is a whole bunch of independent teams that all go off in their own direction and optimize based on their local context. That's going to give you the best way to breadth-first explore the possible data space and find opportunities. It's going to be the most innovative structure that exists. We want consistency in some ways. We need to recognize that anytime we're going for consistency, we are necessarily hurting innovation in that same space. So we might say that we want consistency in our architecture, but we still want innovation in our product suite. And so all the teams do their product planning completely independently, but there's some way in which we're building consistency into our design. That means our designs aren't going to be as innovative, but they're going to be consistent. Right? Or another group might say, actually, we want innovation in our design as well. We want to discover new ways to do code, but we want consistency in our security protocol. We want everything to be you know, really hardened security wise. So we're not gonna actually be that innovative in our security understanding because we're not gonna do it a whole bunch of different ways. But anytime that someone else innovates, we're gonna roll that through the whole company. Once you've made those, the first step is to make those decisions. Where are the places that we want to innovate, that we really want to lead the, the world? And where are the places that we want consistency? And we need to recognize that you can't be both in any one field.
2: So you started by saying that we were trying to optimize for insights from a given set of data. Is that synonymous with innovation, or is the desire for consistency possibly one of the insights that we get?
3: I hold them to be synonymous i, I My experience is that they are synonymous. My experience is that basically you can have a set of insights and then you can roll that in that set of insights across a larger group in, in a consistent fashion. You can also do that in an emergent approach but The consistency isn't in and of itself giving you new insights or opportunities or capabilities. Um, And in fact, a team that is like when I go look at a team of a thousand people that is choosing to be consistent in a particular area in their approach to using the technology, for example, uh, uh, their understanding of their, their core text. I find that they innovate about the same amount as an eight person team that's a single team going in that direction. Uh, And a whole lot less than four eight-person teams that are free-threaded. And so it really does seem that once you say you're going to be consistent on a thing, then the span that is consistent, which might be the whole organization, it might be a sub-portion, you know, that's an intentional design choice. um, The span that is consistent operates as one single discovery unit. And it is no more powerful as a 400-person discovery unit than it would be as an eight-person discovery unit.
2: So let me see if I can restate for my understanding that uh, a company properly optimizes for insider innovation, either word, by default. But then, you know, for for various performance optimizations, you could think of it as they might choose consistency as a trade-off instead of insight and innovation in some places where they really want it.
3: Yeah, and it might be a performance trade-off or it might be any number of other trade-offs. So what's a good good way to think about this? Uh, So actually security is a good one um, to think about some of my time at Microsoft um, where uh, they've decided that they want to be innovative in their tech stack. They want to be innovative in the product suite. They want to be innovative and one can argue the success or failure that they've had in each of these spaces, but they are building out the teams to make independent choices on all of those. But no matter what choices you make there, the technical thing that you have to go through in order to get um, to release for security is consistent. It's consistent across the whole company. Um, and that allows them to have a much smaller – it makes it so that they have significantly fewer defects per individual and per line of code than other groups do. Because they're getting they, – they, they get that really strong, consistent – Security and they have the same sort of a security exposure on all of their products, right?
2: And that's a smart move. I mean, security when you make a mistake is much more costly than other ones. And there's a track record in, in the industry of anytime you're innovative in security, it's probably a bad idea until ten years later, and it's been vetted by everybody.
3: <laughs> exactly, <laughs> right? exactly. And so they they let you know Bruce Schneier and all those people innovate in security. And then they become a fast follower and just the whole company is going to follow the leaders of the in, you know, in industry as quickly as they can, but as a single unit. Yeah. And so that's a, it's a really wise business choice to do that. And there are other, other reasons to make trade-offs as well. Um, optimizing for innovation is, is really great in innovation driven markets. You will rapidly improve, uh, you know, increase the cycle time. Uh, you'll get inside your, your opponent's decision-making loops and you'll gain a tremendous business advantage against competitors. You will also drive the price down. Innovative markets tend to reduce profitability of that market. Once you can get a stable market, you might want to milk it for a little while. Moving to a consistency-based strategy, slowing down the market and the market's advance, as long as your competitors aren't able to to beat you in in innovation, can allow you to milk that market and, and take some better profits out of it.
2: You make it sound like the real competitive advantage is being able to tune your organization on the fly.
3: Absolutely. That's a big competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about how you get consistency because it is tunable. Consistency, when we look at, again, a data processing system, the old way that we got consistency, like consistency was the fundamental problem of data processing. And the old way we got it was scale up. We built a big central something (laughs) that would handle whatever we wanted to be consistent on.
1: The center of excellence. Oh, no. no. A
3: centralized relational database, A um, whatever it was, but we would create this thing that would be a center that would make the, the decisions in a consistent fashion, and then everyone would basically lock and contend for that resource and allow you to scale further because you could have a bunch of things that weren't in that centralized thing. Um, But then when it came to that one aspect that you wanted consistency on, that's where you had the central body. And traditional corporate structures are all about that. The hierarchy exists to survive having poor information flow across the company. It, It was invented by the Medicis way back when, um, well, okay, by a bunch of other people, but it was taken into business by by the Medici to handle the case that sending information across Europe was as expensive as sending goods across Europe. So you just couldn't have everyone making their own independent decisions. Things would collapse. So they invented hierarchy, or they used hierarchies. Hierarchies are great for central, and they're great for having a small group of people that make a decision that everyone else implements. But... That's not necessarily what you want to do. We want consistency. We'd like to do it without resource contention. In the modern era, we solved that problem. We switched from scale-up consistent data source to eventually consistent parallel data source.
2: I see a metaphor brewing here.
3: Yes. So the key to scaling in business is to do that same transformation, but on whatever domain you're, you're working on. So we want to get consistency without centralization because centralization gives us resource locking and contention and slows us down and limits our scale. Whereas consistency can be a market advantage. It'll still slow down our innovation, but it can, we can choose to have it slow the innovation a little and not limit our scale.
2: Okay, well, I'm hearing that there's not a binary necessarily between consistency and innovation, but that there could be, instead of uh, synchronously uh, propagating a change to the organization, which is consistency, you could allow for some lag and have it be consistent enough, often enough, and innovative enough.
3: Yeah, you can, to some degree. Um, It becomes, I have not yet found a way to do it smoothly if there is a centralized resource which means that it doesn't work to have some central body, let's call them a manager, make a decision and then propagate that change. That ends up just being the consistency centralized model, like no matter how much lag there's allowed. (laughs) Lag in that seems to just become inefficiency.
1: Well, and that gets back to your point of the consistency takes away the power of the group. So if it's a manager making a decision, it doesn't matter how many teams you have, they're only going to be as smart as that decision.
3: Right, right. And even if you have a group of people that's making the decision, you're still going to have that same problem. Even if you've got, you know, each group makes its own call, and then they feed that information into a central system, you still have some of those problems, right? Um, Let's talk for a bit about how Google did its UI redesign, however, because this one's interesting. They got consistency without centralization. There was a, a large movement around Google that, they, that people wanted, customers wanted, some consistency in the user experience between the various Google products. And we can argue how good the user experience was that they ended up with, but they ended up with one that was consistent and that seemed to work pretty well in most of their places, which was their objective. The way that they did it was, you know, first of all, it did end up going all the way to the top and the, and, and the guy at the top said, yeah, we, we do need to like make a change here and whatever. But rather than telling people what to do, What he said is, I have designated this group over here, a small group over here, I think it was based out of New York, that is the user experience hub. They will make no decisions. That group operated as reference librarians. And what they did was anyone anywhere in Google could run an experiment, whatever they wanted, and then they could send the the experiment results over to this group, and this group would file it. Anyone in anywhere in Google could look up the experiments that have been run. Once teams had run several experiments... Then teams, then they, they were, you know, blessed with the rights to review a bunch of experiments out there and create synopses and uh, takeaways from that, summaries, right? But you could have multiple summaries over the same body of work, and there was no requirements that they all agree. And all of the Google people could then, you know, a team could say whether they support or refute a given synopsis or a given, et cetera, with other experimental data to, to back them up.
2: So you might say that there's a sort of a data-driven tendency toward coherence across products, but not a mandate.
3: Exactly. Exactly. And it took about 18 months where, uh, over that period of time, groups would make changes and they'd try things and they'd give the results. And then over time, they started to see there seems to be some overwhelming need. Like, there's weight to decisions over in this space. That that these seem to work well for other teams, and so they become more likely to take on what the other teams say, and they find that it works well in their product. And so there's this emergent trend towards whatever seems to work in a broad set of of spaces. And over time, this being user experience, you know, it changes as users experience things and then change their understanding of Google products. And so teams would try something at first, and their users would would Overwhelmingly say no, no, no. We like it the way it is, and make it a little more specialized. And then, as more and more Google properties start to work the same way, they try the same thing nine months later, and the users say, "Oh, thank God, you finally work like a Google product." (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, But yeah, there wasn't so much a mandate as there was a good way for the people on the ground who were doing the work to share data, share results, and share understandings and learnings. This validated learning sort of approach. They had a good communications protocol. They didn't have a leader.
2: What I'm hearing here that sounds like a key success factor that's unstated, that Google has and maybe other places have less, is an experimental mindset in the first place.
3: Feral mental mindset is a huge help. It turns out it's a huge help both for consistency and for continuous improvement and experimentation, innovation.
1: (laughs) It also sounds like they highly valued open data, which is also not a normal corporate trend in my experience, that uh, departments are not usually as open about uh, sharing the secret sauce, so to say.
3: Yeah. Um, I find that companies I work with, tend to fall very quickly into one of two camps. There are companies whose goal is to be effective, and, uh, and, and these, these companies, are uh, you know, they, they have an experimental mindset, they try new things, um, they share data, et cetera, et cetera. And power is very widely distributed, um, and there's a very weak or even sometimes no hierarchy and the like very little individual ownership. And the other set is companies where each person's uh, goal is to survive. <laughs> um, right. And these are, are, are typified by strong individual accountability and individual measures. And in them, there is almost no team. Data hiding is part of it's a, a very valid survival mechanism. And so everybody uses it. Uh, the company doesn't do very well as a result. And one of the most challenging shifts in agile is it really says up front, if you want to be effective, the new modern definition of effective, of of, of adequately effective and innovative is a bar that cannot be met by a bunch of individuals working against each other or even sort of alongside. Fundamentally, to be effective in the modern way, you're going to have to shift being a company that works as teams and as a company, not as a bunch of individuals. And when you do that, the power dynamics change, the politics all change, the way data flow changes, and that is a huge cultural transformation that many companies struggle with. Um, and many companies don't even make it. The ones that don't make it, they're just going to be significantly less innovative than the other companies, and over time they will be competed out of existence. It'll take a while because they're big, usually. But if they don't make that cultural shift, they're they're just not fighting the same game. They're not on the same field.
2: <laughs> Is that, that dichotomy between the, the two styles of company that you see part of the reason that you say start with XP teams, get good at XP, because that's an early way to find out that they're not going to be able to do it?
3: That's part of it. I actually usually start from the top um, with uh, with executives talking about understanding their business because um, it's also worth pointing out some businesses are fundamentally cost control and if you're in a cost control business none of this agile stuff applies to you at all mm-hmm. do not go close to agile it will just balloon your costs <laughs> mm-hmm. you might want to learn a little bit about refactoring and TDD. get a little of that and leave everything else behind because <laughs> it is designed for innovation driven businesses so recognize which business you're in But if you are in an innovation-driven business, then that's where we go to the top and we talk about, well, let's talk about how you be innovative and how you actually get a given amount of innovation with your your spend. And so I often start with them and talk about, well, and these are some of the things it's going to cost. Like this cultural change is not easy. And here are some of the problems you're going to have to solve. How do your mid-level managers maintain status when um, the power and decision-making moves out of management. And in fact, 90% of those jobs go away, the other 10% change. How do your executives maintain status and interest when 100% of those jobs change? And maybe some of them go out of existence. It's important to address you know, the personal safety and personal status aspects of these things. Otherwise, the change ain't going anywhere.
2: So I reviewed uh, a piece of yours that I read a while back, the sociocracy dynamic governance idea. Yeah. And I'm wondering, it seems like it's, it's a segue from what you're talking about now. Uh, have you seen companies that try to adopt that or are already working kind of like that? Uh, or have you seen companies try to move toward that? And what challenges did they face? Any of those questions I'm interested in.
3: Yeah, sure. Sociocracy is interesting. The first thing to point out on sociocracy is just how old it is and how well tested. Um, so it was invented in the 30s in the Netherlands. And was originally developed to allow school children, like five and eight-year-olds, to drive their own education and control their own education and have that actually work out (laughs) with decisions made by (laughs) five-year-olds. And it worked. And it's been tested over and over. And about the 70s was the first time it entered business and it entered government maybe 10 years after that. Um, And the largest sociocracy in the world is a single organization that's one and a quarter million people, um, much larger than any hierarchy that currently exists. So it's been really well explored. Now, mostly it's been explored in Dutch. So if you don't read Dutch, um, <laughs> there's a lot less information available. <laughs> um, but there's some that's coming out. Holocracy is uh, an Americanism of it. So the people who are trying holocracy, um, they, it's they're taking some of the parts of sociocracy, but still combining it with a lot of individual accountability. Um, and not as much of the team aspects. It works. It works okay, um, but it has pretty mixed results. The teams that I've seen doing sociocracy, um, they have that same fundamental problem at first. Of you're going against the cultural American cultural norm. Um, we believe in the American hero, in rugged individualism. Like these are values that we hold deeply, and this agile stuff is saying, "Oh yeah, um, hmm, that's nice. It's wrong, but it's nice." Um, that's hard (laughs) Um, and so agile transformations run into that problem sociocratic transformations run into that problem all these things do if you're willing to accept that the goal is total effectiveness of the group and having a wonderful and enjoyable team experience and the goal is not for me to um, to pull my up myself up my by my bootstraps claw my way to the top and make a thousand times as much income as someone else in my company, right? If we switch the goal, then sociocracy works wonderfully.
2: If- Would you say, in your experience, that there's the same kind of divide in individual human personalities between I want to be a part of an effective team and I want to cover my own butt and be successful as me? as you've seen in companies?
3: Deming has a really great quote on this, um, which is, uh, 95% of the behavior of any human has to do with the system in which they are found. Only 5% Mm -hmm. is due to the human. And the reverse is not true. (laughs) Systems not behave the way they do because of the humans involved. Systems behave because of the way the system is set up. What I find is that if I take the same person and move them between two companies, their behaviors and their desires change rapidly. It takes a month or two. I can take wow. someone from one of these safe companies and put them in an unsafe company or vice versa, and everything changes in a month or two. Um, and they don't notably perturb the company that they go join.
1: <laughs> so that's accurate. I've actually I've lived that transformation. I've gone from unsafe to safe before, and... It is absolutely right you you go from one set of behaviors to another. the rewards change the uh, the social pressures change I, That is a very true observation yeah. and it um, it all goes back to safety you know you yeah. a lot of these things I even find that you know, to get back to some of our discussions around innovation and consistency, you know even the consistency can be mistaken as safety and still si- and still stifle that innovation it 's really it's such a, a, an interesting balance, and it's something that you guys at Industrial Logic uh, that you guys really focus on. It's the engineering uh, approach to software development. It's something that Tim Ottinger's come on the show and talked about mm-hmm. before in the past, that at the core of what we're doing, everyone thinks it's coding.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: you know, interaction with you guys and, and a number of other people and some introspective thought has driven me to think that at the core of what we're doing as a profession is safety. Yes. Yeah. And the safer people are within the organizations that they're working and the safer that the developers, the testers, the managers, the executives, the higher level of safety will relate back to the higher level of effectiveness.
3: So you held the core as safety. I hold safety as the fundamental route, not the core. And that the core that we're trying to do is to make effective businesses that are innovative and transformative and make the world a better place for the people who are in them and the people who are out of them and make money while doing so. Like, build awesome businesses. (laughs) That's the core. It's just that the most effective way to do that is to make a business that can continually change and grow and adapt. And the heart of doing that is safety.
2: And I would tie those together, uh, including ideas of yours, Arlo's, that the safety... Uh, brings us effective businesses because it brings us humans in a position to make the best possible decisions, and, and that's the bottleneck to everything we do. Is what cognitive resources do we have to bring to bear ourselves? What can we share with our teammates, coworkers, and leaders? And what's what's at risk when we make a choice? Because that's what we have to do all the time.
3: Yeah, that's that's one very big part of of where safety and I. I and in describing safety as the road, as the route, I think it, it's like for all of these objectives, safety is the thing to look at and the thing that we march along that is the bottleneck and that, that allows us to improve. So, yeah, whether that's in decision making, totally agree there. Um, in uh, technical stuff, you know, why refactor instead of t- editing code? You know, why should we never actually type letters safety. <laughs> and safety right. eliminates the defects and then gives us code that we can actually transform, right? Well, um, and, and all of these things, safety is the route. That, that's what I hold.
1: Yeah, and I agree with that. I think you phrased it better. I think we're all speaking the same kind of language here, though, is that we all hold safety to be important. Mm-hmm. Uh, our goal is, of course, to, to build amazing companies that do wonderful things for the world. and And it's not just about the code and our own personal items—it's—it's it's that safety for ourselves and everyone else—and it's—it's a, a great message. I love that you guys at Industrial Logic embrace that. You did mention refactoring, and I think this mm-hmm. is a good segue into a topic that I've always loved, and I think test-driven development is perhaps one of the greatest gifts uh, given to the development world—the—the uh, the idea of uh, red, green, and and keep it green, uh, but. Uh, Arlo, you have some, some thoughts about this as far as refactoring as the next step. And I was wondering if you would tee that up for the listeners and kind of first help them out with your thoughts on test-driven development and why you think that refactoring is the next step.
3: Yeah. Um, and, in fact, I'm going to start with a contentious statement, and then I'll, I'll, I'll tee it up and, and go from there. But my contentious statement is um, that the world was offered a gem and a nice rock. The nice rock was TDD, and we took it. <laughs> Um, that refactoring was actually the key to success and the transformative thing, um, and that we skipped past it to the one that was easy to describe and a number of other reasons, but we ended up, we picked up the wrong one and we took it as the center point. Um, So it's partially refactoring is the next step and actually partially refactoring is the more important first step that we skipped in our rush to do TDD. And one of the fine examples of that is the overuse of mocks. Mocks have a use. There, there are a couple of places that they that they are legitimately used. Um, one of their legitimate uses is if you're using a tell, do ask architecture, which is what um, Steve Freeman and, and Matt Price were building when they invented mocks. Um, they invented the whole thing for testing systems of that architecture, and it's exactly the right solution, works beautifully, no problem. And they end about, 20 other people or 20 other teams on the planet are the only ones who use those architectures. So no one else can use that excuse. (laughs) Beautiful architecture that no one uses. The other common use for mocks is when you have code that is tightly interdependent, that is highly context sensitive, that is a pain to work with, that uh, that has huge instabilities and dependencies, and you want to pretend briefly that it isn't. Without actually fixing those problems, you just want to pretend that they aren't there. And mocks are really good for that. Um, That's useful when dealing with legacy code because often breaking all the dependencies requires breaking another dependency and there's circular references of these. And you want to just sort of slap something down over the top without having to actually change the code so that you can start making the first couple of changes. And then you get rid of all the mocks. But when I look at teams out there, most teams that are doing TDD, the first thing that they ask is, what's my TDD framework? And the second thing is, what's my mock framework? Because they assume that TDD involves using mocks. That How could you do unit testing without mocks? And I would argue a test that uses mocks, unless it's TDA, TDA blah, tell, don't ask architecture, a test that uses mocks is not a unit test. It's not a TDD microtest. And so if you're using mocks, You're not doing TDD, but you can only do it that way if you can refactor. And that's where we missed this first step. And because we missed refactoring, um, everyone has to do TDD in the mock approach where they have a bad design and they try and get it under test. And they add incrementally more, a new test, but a little more design weight and another twisted mock and so on as they go. And it becomes to work with. So when I talk about refactoring, I mean something very precisely. Um, and this is sort of what the core original definition or one of them was. Um, we've moved away from it in the industry. But I mean a redesign that is executed. Redesigns could be done by micro rewrites or by refactorings. A redesign that is executed by known safe static code transformations which can be verified without using external tests.
2: In other words, if you had like a, a, a syntax tree, you yep. could just move things around in, in standard transformations and it would be an identical program and you would know that.
3: Yes, exactly. And that's in fact how modern refactoring tools work. You know, ReSharper internally has an understanding of your code that's a semantic understanding and if it allows you an extract method, it's because it has looked at that syntax tree and said, yes, I know how to transform that to a different one where the method is extracted that I can guarantee is identical. And when it rejects your extract method, it's because it's looking at that syntax tree and saying, there isn't one that's equivalent. This would introduce a change. Right. A good tool doesn't allow you to make any arbitrary refa- change. It only allows the safe refactoring. <laughs> um, So when you're working in that way and you have that ability to make design changes, then now you can execute a design change instead of by writing a bunch of code or writing some code and editing it and then running a bunch of tests and hoping they're good enough and then writing code and editing it. You can instead do transform, 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 commit. Each of those transformers is known safe. The sequence is known safe. Check in.
2: Or ideally transform, commit, transform, commit, if you really can.
3: Uh, You can, um, when I'm working with a tool, a transform takes me between a quarter second and, and as long as two seconds. I don't want to do that unless I'm using one of my auto commit scripts. And uh, it's committing, you know, the the 30 git commits that happen over a minute of coding. But I'm not writing messages for those. <laughs>
2: you are even so, more optimized than I am, I'm afraid.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so with all these wonderful tools like ReSharper, which is, uh, I think, part of Visual Studio now, if I'm not mistaken... Why has refactoring taken a back seat, especially with these great assists that these tools provide?
3: Well, a number of reasons. First, um, the tools depend on languages being uh, being analyzable. JavaScript isn't. Ruby isn't. Python isn't. Um, Static languages have a huge advantage for the tools. Um, Without the static languages, even a rename isn't necessarily safe. And so it can provide you code transforms, but it can't provide safe code transforms. And so you don't get all the, all the price. Another thing is people haven't paid for the tools to really advance, like outside of a few areas. Um, uh, there was a big push in, in the Java world. There was a big push in the C-sharp world. And people pay for the refactoring tools there. They haven't paid for them in a lot of other places. And so the tool vendors haven't invested. And so the tools are meh in a lot of places. Bigger facet of it is a lot of people don't distinguish between known safe transformations approach of refactoring and just editing code and doing micro rewrites. Mm-hmm. That nuance is missed, and that nuance is the whole thing.
2: <laughs> people say refactoring when they're changing some code. Doesn't matter if it's precisely refactoring or not.
3: Exactly, and therefore people know uh, when people do that, and they mostly do it by editing they have the same bug rate as any sort of redesign, Um, and everybody knows redesigns are buggy, and they are, they measure that, and they say, this refactoring thing is dangerous, let's not really do that. Maybe if there are enough tests under it, and that's where they talk about TDD is to support refactoring, right? If we've got enough tests, we'll discover our bugs soon after we create them. If you've got enough, if you do refactoring the right way, then you won't create the bugs, so you can make your code testable and then put tests. <laughs> you factor untested code all the time.
0: Arlo,
1: can you help me with that? So it's been a number of years since I've actually written any any Java code, and so I'm, I'm far enough removed where there's enough fog in my brain that, that this, this isn't connecting. I'm thinking that perhaps some in the audience may may not be making the connection as well. Can you walk through kind of a, a codish English type example of you know, refactoring something prior to testing and then how that refactoring improved testing?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, so a fine example is uh, I, I recently did a blog series that I'm, I guess, uh, six-eighths of the way through publishing on, <laughs> on improving names. Um, <laughs> there's a running example that's, run, that, that's going through there that's from a, a situation I did at a conference a while back. So I'll, I'll talk to that example. So that was a system for FCC, or no, uh, FAA. Um, They were tracking airplanes in some sort of, I don't understand exactly, way. Um, (laughs) And uh, they needed to update to the new version of the data. Um, The data format was XML-based and is backwards compatible, except that they have some additional information they want to pull out of it, so they really do need to make some updates. And it's backwards compatible, asterisk, because there's always that asterisk. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So they have a ch- couple of changes they need to make. Um, the code that we're going to work with is untested legacy code. Um, th- because this was for a conference, I, we picked a relatively small thing. I think it was no more than about 2000 lines, it was a relatively small method for legacy. Uh- <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so we want to get this thing. It, is presumed to correctly cover the current data needs from the current data source. Um, It has been tested in the field to that end. um, And we want to make it so that it will handle the new one. And, and we want to be able to release it before the new one comes out. So we also want to be able to continue to handle current needs off of current data source. So step one is we need to understand and isolate this code. And I've found that the, Basically, there are two ways to understand code. One, you can read through it a whole lot and try and figure it out. Two, you can read through a little bit of it, gain one idea, and write it down. Repeat until the code becomes readable, and then read through it. (laughs) Um, And that's the approach that I I tend to use, because it's a heck of a lot cheaper. Um, And the heart of that approach is refactoring. So what you're going to do is you're going to, you know, what we did was we look at this big, nasty thing, and we we decided, you know, we knew that the top of any method is likely to be a bunch of guard clauses, so we started at the bottom. and We grabbed the largest just curly brace that near the end of the function and extract methoded it. And we had no idea what it was called. <laughs> right um, And we did that a couple of times until we had broken them out and we would quickly peruse through it and if we knew could get one or two ideas of what it was we would give it a name and so we had things you know do something evil to the database um (laughs) don't know what it does but i see that there are four write operations to a a, a variable called db cursor i'm gonna assume it does something evil to the database (laughs) Um, and and so on as you start to tease it apart And then we were eventually able to find the chunk of code that was related to parsing some XML. And aha, this is related to our project. So we went in there. And as we did these refactorings, we were able to extract what used to be this big method that did, that was given multiple XML documents and uh, when it completed, returned nothing, but by side effect, modified a bunch of databases on the basis of what was in those documents and what had already been in those databases. <laughs> so, read-write to database, read-only from file. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's legacy. It works. <laughs> um, and therefore, wasn't tested. We had, just in trying to tease it apart and understand what the thing does, we'd created a bunch of chunks that were reading from the XML file and creating these big struts that would be passed back. And then some other ones that were taking these big struts and analyzing the database and modifying the big struts. And then some other ones that were taking these final big struts and on the basis of that information, writing things out to the database. All of these are easier to test.
2: And all of a sudden you don't have a 2,000 line method where everything is effectively global and you don't know how to think about it. You have inputs and outputs and, you know, confusing transformations that aren't explained well, but they're there.
3: Exactly. And so as you keep going down into the area that you actually want to make that change, um, once we had that broken apart, we realized that the places that we really wanted to make the change are in the XML parsing and the struct. We want to add a couple more data items to the struct and read them out of the file. So we can go in there. Well, that's easy to test drive. First, we just, we look at the code that's already there and... We use approval tests, the Llewellyn's approval test approach, to just throw in a whole bunch of random data um, and see what structs come out. And we just lock in on the test, we say this is supposed to generate, I guess, that struct <laughs> from this data source, whatever it does. You know, we just take a week's worth of random data inputs, jam them through, there, that's where it's supposed to generate. We use that to pin things in place. And then you could start identifying the places where we actually wanted to make a change and start TDDing those and write a test for, oh, well, this is actually the important part that we should now get into the struct um, from that. And then you can start looking at those pinning tests and teasing out from that what are the actual cases, the actual business cases, and turn those from just approval pinning tests into, they still use approval style, um, but business case tests that really are clearly describing um, what's going on. And those insights, that you're having there. The first sets we were recording via refactorings into names and into the structure of the code. The second set of insights are insights about runtime and data behavior, and those we record as tests, that becomes the spec. So as we're working with the code, it's not that we're trying to get the code under test, it's that we're trying to understand what the code does. Every time we we realize one thing that the code does, we just write it down, and when we leave, we've got more of the spec written than was there before.
2: You know, that's, that's an extreme case where you need approval tests to try to validate what even is being pinned. But you also said something to the effect of, uh, of untangling you know, the biggest curly braces you can find inside the method just to help you understand it. And that's a much more globally applicable technique. Like, I, I refactor code just to understand it, even when it's far from legacy. It mm-hmm. helps me to get my head around, you know, how are these connected, how are they coupled, and how am I free to move them? And that works on any kind of code base for me.
3: Yeah, absolutely it does. Similarly, the, the other set of insights really does as well, which is identifying a business case, extracting the spec. So we might not throw the entire you know, bajillion uh, uh, files at it and, and record the log into a pinning test, but we might instead say, um, looking at this bit of code that I've now extracted and I'm looking at, oh, I can see here that there are a couple of business cases it seems to be handling given the names that I've created, I bet if I give it this data, it should give me something like this. And then I can verify whether my insight's correct.
2: And it turns out that a nice way to ask questions of code is to write tests for it.
3: Exactly. And what I'm doing is I'm writing the spec. Mm -hmm. The spec is just best represented as uh, tests, as code. But like a spec, it needs to have all of the characteristics of the spec. Do not over-specify. Do not specify twice. No redundancy. A spec is meant to be read by humans, not by computers. (laughs) A spec is optimally written first, but when it wasn't written first, it's a really good idea to create it on the basis of the code that's already there.
2: (laughs) Amen. (laughs)
3: Yeah. So that naturally develops as just the way that you operate with tests. Once you have that refactor-first mindset and you understand refactoring is about just running that loop, have have an insight, write it down, have an insight, write it down, have an insight, write it down, You can do that by executing your refactoring safely if you want to put a structural one in, or you can do that by recording one test if you have runtime data insight. All the rest of TDD just flows as a natural extension, and it's a TDD that never needs mocks.
2: because Because you get to make those design decisions about, well, what does this depend on that I would want to fake or behave differently in a test? And you get to make that design decision before it gets encoded and you have to mock it.
3: Well, and actually you start looking at there's this thing that it depends on that I would like to fake. Oh, why did I choose that design? One of my past mentees used to joke, you know, he talked about the you know solid principle and, and uh, dependency inversion is a big one. He said, as soon as instead of dependency inversion, you assume dependency elimination, a lot of the advice becomes not irrelevant. <laughs> um, so once you start focused on eliminating dependencies, Work towards pure designs and tell-don't-ask designs. Uh, work towards simply taking meaningful whole-value data uh, blocks and operating on them. Work towards an independence, you know, put in events rather than function calls where, where something actually just depends on being called when a thing happens as opposed to actually being part of an intentional computational flow. You know, all of these sorts of things. Um, you can now test your system in exactly the way it is meant to be used without ever needing a mock, if I have a piece of code that calls another piece of code where the call you know say it 's a GUI um, you know uh, calling into the, the regular code, the function call there is not because the GUI is trying to compute something the function call there is that the GUI is trying to notify something that hey something interesting happened All right if I If I write that using a controller with a function call, it's hard to test and I have to instantiate a tremendous amount of the system to verify the GUI. And then to verify the thing, the controller itself, I do everything under it. And then the regular code, I I call everything under it. And I have this gobstopper of overlapping tests and my spec is redundant. So instead, if I put an event between them, then now I can have one test that says, when this happens to the UI, the event is fired. That's it tests. Another one that says, when init exits, this event is bound to that method. That's all it checks. It doesn't actually execute the event. It just sees who's listening. Right? And then a third one that's just for that method, and it's just inside the model. Right? My tests are small. They're simple. They're completely independent. They each describe a useful aspect of the domain. Um, and I don't have to have mocks or fakes to test any of it.
2: And you're also free, for instance, if you, if you don't think that the, there's any likelihood that your GUI sending that event when it's supposed to with the right data when it's supposed to is going to fail, you're free to just not test that if you right. trust everything that's involved.
3: Right. Yeah. That's, that's up to you, especially if you're using some GUI framework um, <laughs> and you know it's going to fire the event. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. I don't need to test that. TDD doesn't really find tests. It design, finds design flaws. If your design is bad enough, it'll find, test, uh, find bugs, but but really it finds design flaws. And every time that you have a dependency that you, you wanna fake out, every time something is not context neutral, that's what tests tell you. They tell you when your code is context neutral and when you're, when it isn't. And context neutral code has fewer defects in it because it's easier for humans to understand. That's how it ends up eliminating bugs, but the key point is it's just giving you design feedback. This code, it's hard to test. The reason it's hard to test is because it's not context-neutral. So fix that.
2: Yeah, and that design feedback is crucial. I remember for me, like I, when I started as a programmer with object orientation and a little bit of test driving, I thought I had some design sense. And the only way I found out that I didn't and now have a tiny bit is by getting myself hooked into these feedback loops. And that's why I have any smell or feel or or sense of whether I'm going in the right direction or wrong direction is that I always work with this kind of a net where if something doesn't feel right I find out earlier
3: yeah and TDD can be a good way to get that design feedback so can pair programming uh, or mobbing. Um, There are a bunch of different ways to get the feedback, the the single data point that your design is crap (laughs) it doesn't tell you what you should do but they all give you the feedback of your your current design is crap in some aspect Refactoring is the way to get from a design that is crap in one aspect to one that isn't. And you can do that two ways. One, you can have a better design sense and know where you're going. That works great. And then you can just do the series of refactorings that will get you there. Lovely. Wonderful. Two, you cannot have a better design sense and you can just try and mechanically refactor away the annoying bit. Shockingly, that works. <laughs> Actually, most of the design learning that I've gotten um, and my knowledge of the nuance of when to use designs and which designs and exactly what's going to work when is by taking code that was monstrous and ugly, but effective and doing specifically atomic refactorings, then I could only change it into the things that were design equivalent. And there and I find, would find that there are some designs that I just couldn't reach from here. Well, yeah, because that design wouldn't actually solve the problem the same way. It wouldn't have the same solution. <laughs> um, and so that helped me explore design space and discover things. And I kept learning new things, either new designs that I would then look up in literature and find a name for, that sure enough that everyone else had already invented, or new ones. That refactoring mechanically to just find, you know, keep making something more context neutral and easier to work with, actually can really teach you a lot about design as well
1: what are some of the materials, the books, the things that have made a huge impact on you that people could go out and and start working with if they also feel that design is an area that they could use some work on?
3: So the number one design book that I would recommend to people um, is uh, Seven Languages in Seven Weeks because it doesn't teach you design at all. It teaches you how to pick up and try entirely new languages. And in each language, there are things which are trivial, obvious, built-in designs that are really advanced topics in another language. So if you want to learn all the designs, just go learn the languages in which each one's trivial. (laughs) And then cross-apply them back to whatever your home language is.
1: And I have to agree with that. I know that um, starting with a very deep Java background and then taking a, a look at Ruby was uh, incredibly Mm eye-opening. You know, things that were very difficult in Java were very simple in Ruby, but then again, those static types in Java, you start to miss them, and the things that you can do and abuse and mangle and change are different between the languages, and you do get a lot of insights, and you can actually bring back some of those niceties of Ruby and start applying that thinking to Java. And so I I think that's an important insight, Mm -hmm. and really appreciate that. Amitai. How
2: about for you? Well, what Arlos has definitely worked for me, uh, especially, I mean, I haven't read that particular book, but I've heard of it, and I smiled when he said it, and it's on my (laughs) list, along with a lot of other books that I haven't read and should have. But what the aspect of that that has worked for me is I tried to learn object-oriented programming kind of on my own as a kid in Perl, because that's what I had handy. And it just made no sense, because the language doesn't have affordances for really anything, let alone, oh, oh, Uh, I do love Perl now. But then I was lucky enough to get hired into a job that, first of all, was an XP shop, and it was my first programming job, and I learned a lot of right things and not a lot of wrong ones. Uh, And one of the things that I was learning there was object orientation in a language that doesn't give you a lot of ways to not do it. And so that was an easier way to learn it, and then when I went back to Perl years later, I knew what I was looking to accomplish, and all of a sudden the problem was tractable. So in that sense, I, I follow up with that advice. For me, again, not being super well read uh, in all the standard literature, my advice is: step one, be an introspective person. Mm-hmm. Step two, uh, be a person who looks for consequences of your actions not only over a near time horizon but over a longer time horizon. And then three, make a lot of decisions in code and see what happens. <laughs> let that me add, let me add learned. a f- let good. me add a
1: fourth. Let me add a number four to that, Amitai. Pair program with someone who understands design better than you.
3: Also That's real pair, nice
2: that you have it, yeah.
3: Also pair program with someone who doesn't understand design as well as you. <laughs> it's exactly. a good one. Um Work with other people. And, and with some people who are at about your level. Because each of them give you different design insights.
1: Yeah. Right on. Very good. And you know what, guys? Speaking of diverse insights, Arlo, you've had <laughs> some posts recently about gender and hiring. Uh, your writings have, have certainly uh, been focused on that lately uh, you know, what's going on in that space for you and where do you see that going especially in our in our industry
3: I'm gonna come at this from a completely different direction than anybody else ever does um, <laughs> which tends to be sort of my approach um, so I'm gonna say that our goal is simply to create teams that are really effective and innovative first we're gonna create a bunch of innovative teams right? and innovative teams the way you do that is you create teams that are masters of learning. Maximize insights per hour, that's also called maximizing learning. That's the same thing, right? Um, So if I have a team, and the modern structures pair programming and and two-day cycle time for retrospectives and and, uh, one-week cycle time with product and a one-day cycle time with product experiments and, and all of those sorts of things, they're all designed to optimize learning. Those all become just sort of a Mexicanistic result or, you know, part of your process and learning rapidly speeds up. The thing that happens at that point is skills become not so valuable. The better teams that I've worked with, they will hire, you know, when there's a new skill that everyone on the team need, or that, that they need to know, it's brand new technology or it's a whatever else, the, what they'll do is they'll hire a consultant who's really good in the field. They'll bring them in. They'll work with him and have him work, require that he work on site with them doing the projects. And they'll be pair programming and mobbing and they'll be doing all their normal apply application stuff. And they won't even focus on his work. Like they'll do some of his work and some other stuff. And a month or so down the road, everyone on the team has as much skill in that deep specialty as the, the consultant does and they'll let him go. Because you can build a specialist to the point that they can be a software consultant in a month in any skill in programming if you've got a team that's working in the consistent XP way. So when you have that, then you start looking at hiring. Well, what should we be hiring on the basis of? Experience, skill, knowledge? Well, there you're gonna pay an extra $75,000 for a one month head start. Sometimes that's worthwhile, but it's pretty rare. So instead, let's look at what gives you long-term a sustainable advantage and what do you actually really want on your team? And so for that, I say, well, let's go ask organizational psychologists because they study this stuff. Um, And there's a really interesting study back to like six or eight years ago now was the original study, and there's been a follow-up I'll get to. um, But the original study, they looked at a whole bunch of, of problem sets and they were trying to identify what are the facets of a team that make it effective at doing things at solving problems and so they had things from theoretical physics and math proofs to music problems and art problems to um, factory floor process automation to just a whole bunch wide range of things white color, blue color, artistic you know, gamut of problems simple ones, hard ones, etc. And then they had teams with a bunch of different facets and they threw them at those problems and they saw who was more effective and who could solve, get better solutions and in what time and so forth. And they found a couple of minor correlations with success and one huge correlation. Guess what it was?
2: Diversity of thinking on a team among the members?
3: Close, not quite. I mean, there's there's some correlation there, but but, uh, it's something very specific that gives some of that. Any other guesses?
2: A lot of coffee.
1: No, it's got to it's be a social factor. Like, um, mm-hmm. I, would, I would try empathy.
2: Yeah,
3: that's what it actually turned out to be, but they didn't discover that until the second study.
1: The okay, so I cheated. Huh. I'm sorry.
3: Yeah, <laughs> you're a whole, a whole bit ahead in this um, story. <laughs> yeah. um, the first chapter, the first study, what they found was it was the raw number count of women on the team. Ignore everything you know about optimal team sizes and everything else. If you took the the number of people on the team and gave zero points for every man and one point for every woman, high score wins. So they went, WTF. And they then started to think about what are the things that that women in America, because this was an American-based study, are consistently better at than men, um, and how could it be so different across gender lines? Um, what's going on here and the thing that they looked at was emotional intelligence because we do train our women to be high in emotional intelligence and we train our men to be low in it on average (laughs) there are exceptions but on average the bell curves are pretty broad, pretty separated and so then they started looking for people who were outliers on those and they found that sure enough there were some men that were almost as good as the typical women um, and there were some women that were pretty much as bad as the typical men and it was those that were outliers on emotional intelligence. So yes, empathy and emotional intelligence were the thing that drove success. That is a thing which, while you can learn some aspects of it, a lot of it is personality. Not in that it can't be changed, but in that that it is slow to change, and you can't demand that somebody change it. It is not appropriate for an employer to demand that an employee become more empathic. Like, that is a transformation of their whole life. Whereas, go learn JavaScript. Okay, yeah, that's legit. <laughs> Not a problem, <laughs> right? Empathy is a thing, emotional intelligence and awareness are things that are actually worth hiring for. And so when I hire, I don't hire for skill. I could give her about skill. I hire for emotional intelligence and a number of other behavioral traits that are the same sorts of things, um, where I want heterogeneous teams, some people that are creative, some people that are tenacious and, and uh, really just like dive into a problem, some people that are analytical and data-oriented, some people that are people-oriented, some, you know, a variety of those sorts of things. And so on my team, I'll be looking at, as a team as a whole, we have two, in, two that have this trait one that ha- is an exemplar of that trait, and we've got three that are okay at this but no exemplars, and where's our gap? I'll fill in some of those. Um, but those are all that I look at. And then I have the group, I have the, the candidate pair to do the work so that we can see that, you know, it's mostly actually an empathy test, but secondarily, are they willing and able to learn? Does this thrill them? Um, well, that's all I hire for. And it turns out that when hiring that way, women have a huge advantage. As a hiring manager, the resumes that I look at that the incoming flow in a technical field is preponderantly men. And the number, the people that are higher actually are, over, are majority men, but not as majority men as the incoming uh, um, resumes, Because when I start to really look at the things that give me long-term sustainable advantage, assuming that skill is cheap and can be grown, Those are things which more of our women are better at than our men are. And so on an equal footing, in an equal interview, the woman's got an edge.
2: When the person doing the hiring has distilled the success factors as you have, which is rare.
3: (laughs) Correct. On my team, she's got an edge. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, Yes. In industry as a whole, people are still hiring on the basis of The number one trait people hire on the basis of is fit and feel, which is they are like me. They are in my tribe. So guess what? They'll be your sex. They will be your skin tone. uh, They will be your height. (laughs)
2: Or, Or I don't know what to look for because I'm not qualified to judge a candidate for this. So I'll look for things where nobody could blame me if they had the following criteria.
3: Right. That's another one. And then that often goes towards skill and experience.
2: Or I'll
1: follow an HR metric that they have to have between four and six years of experience and a laundry list of buzzwords and languages. And, and, oh, they better have a few accomplishments on their resume and all these other arbitrary things that may or may not add to a team.
2: I feel like we're being unfair to Arlo because he gave us some really good ideas and now we're coming back with really bad ones.
1: <laughs> yeah, we are. Yeah, We we have to balance out the podcast. It can't be all gold. <laughs> it
3: can't be all gold. We've got to have a little bit of dross in there.
1: There's There's yeah. got to be some coal in there too, you know?
3: Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things that people do. Most people aren't educated on how to interview. Most hiring managers have never been educated on how to interview. Um, Most hiring managers have never been educated on how to hire or how to build a team or what a team is or what makes a team effective. And most of them are also swamped and in an unsafe situation where they don't have time to go learn that. And even if they did learn it, they certainly don't have safety to be the only person at their company that is doing this different way of hiring. They will get smacked down by H.R.,
2: when you put it that way, it's shocking that any companies anywhere ever get any of the right things done.
3: You don't. That's the great thing about business. You don't have to be any good at it. You just have to be better than the next guy over.
2: <laughs> just got to be faster than your friend.
3: Just got to be faster than your friend.
2: Or willing to trip them.
3: Right. And, <laughs> and this is a place where the top teams, the top companies, are routinely able to put together 16 people organized as two XP teams that out innovate and drive into the ground a two thousand person company without any effort like they do that on the way to what they were actually doing they don't even notice that they killed a company however those companies are doing things that are culturally hard given our basic defaults in american culture our assumption of rugged individualism our assumption of the american hero puts us at such a disadvantage our assumption of hierarchy, which is a result of those, puts us at such a competitive disadvantage that if those are all you have to compete at, you don't actually have to be really good. <laughs> right. Um, ironic. <laughs> ironic, yeah. And, and we get a lot of you know, evidence-based management stuff that is improving and optimizing the way that we work uh, with all of those assumptions because 0% of the things that they test ever break those assumptions, then 100% of their results say that those assumptions are valid. <laughs> um, no and surprise there. Are, there. No, no surprise there, it's just data, right? So the number of people that actually explore the space at all, they get off of the basic cultural norms, um, is very, very small. And as a result, if you're in one of the, the many companies that is not exploring, the space broadly. First, you very rarely have to compete against someone who's actually very good at their job at all, because those companies are so rare. Second, if you want to, you can choose to make a few improvements in this direction, and it will put you leaps and bounds ahead of the otherwise incompetent all around you. (laughs) It's not actually that hard, but it does take the the perseverance to step away from the assumption that I'm going to make a difference and towards the assumption that we as a group are going to make something awesome.
2: And it may be easier to question that assumption if more Americans traveled abroad, like to the Netherlands.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Go watch children play on the playground in the Netherlands for an hour and you will see better examples of corporate governance than in any American company. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you know, I actually I've based a talk on uh, my my two kids and a large group of their friends organizing a game in the backyard and how they exemplified more of the agile values and principles in, a, in an afternoon at a barbecue than I've seen some teams uh, express in, in years it actually is amazing to watch kids play and see how they work these things out. And, and even some of them have far more emotional intelligence than the person sitting next to you in, in that next cubicle or office. I think it's an important insight. They, my kids teach me so much about this area that, uh, yeah, they, incredibly insightful comment there.
3: Yeah, yeah. Kids teach you a lot and other cultures teach you a lot. Um, yeah, get out, get outdoors, get out and try some of the, you know, explore and experience some of those, and uh, and then it will be easier to put together a team that can work as a team.
1: I've actually had some open positions this year. I'm, and I'm and I'm finding that many of your observations about hiring are accurate. There's a few things that have always bothered me about the process, mm-hmm. and maybe we can bounce a few of those around. The first thing that I've always noticed about actual job postings, very dry, very generic, (coughs) and not geared towards a female audience. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're more individual accomplishment driven. They're more years of experience driven. And that's not to say that women in the field do not have years of experience. Many of them do. But what I'm saying is, is that those are very dry, uh, metric-based descriptions of a job that would not appeal towards an emotional intelligence-based mindset?
3: I, I would, in fact, go one step further and say, I'm going to leave beside the years of experience because that just sort of filters to whoever we hired last year, we're going to hire next year. And so it's just right. it just reinforces whatever filter is already being applied to the workforce. <laughs> um, but So I'm going to step away from that one momentarily. Um, the, the one about accomplishments is really telling because the more emotionally intelligent and aware someone is, the more they were realized that they did not have individual accomplishments the people who can list individual accomplishments are the people who were jocks that never had their had a challenge in their life that have moved that moved straight from jock to mba to mid to mid-high level executive and believe that the way you get things done is you command it and thus it be so <laughs> um, and those people can list their accomplishments just off the top of their head without any qualm because they've never really had the experience of working with somebody and seeing how many of their ideas are flat-out wrong and seeing how many of their ideas get changed and modified when working with other people, when working with the actual data, when working with the actual customers, um, and how little value there is in an, actual I- in, in an idea and how much value there is in working that idea. And in bringing in all the brains and working that idea. And the more emotionally intelligent, the more someone does those things, the more emotionally intelligent they become. The more emotionally intelligent they become, the more they fundamentally understand, I didn't succeed. We succeeded. We built a team that could do all sorts of great things. And when you ask me to list my individual accomplishments, I can say, well, okay, so there were all the important things we did as a team so that we succeeded. But there was this unimportant thing off the side that we knew was unimportant. So we gave it to an individual, and I happened to be the individual up on the Rota. So I got that done.
2: You might be able to say, like, <laughs> what I brought to the team that made it effective more than it would have been otherwise was X, Y, and Z. You
1: know, when, I, when I've asked that question in interviews, it was a, a wonderful young lady who I ended up hiring, who when I asked about accomplishments uh, was talking about, moments where they were supportive of another person on a team. Yep. So a person was having a difficult situation or where basically they had to use empathy yep. or or just just being there to listen and I was very impressed with that 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 was considered an accomplishment in and of itself.
3: Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: That's awesome.
1: Yeah. Another observation that I've made is that the best have not been from a CS background. Mm-hmm. Which I found just astonishing because if you look at the the standard job posting CS degree preferred and, and all those things. But the single best programmer that I ever hired had a music background.
2: Mm-hmm. Ryan, you're just pandering computer. to me now.
1: No, no, no. It, it's not you, Amitai. <laughs> it's, it's another gentleman who went on to work for major companies like Google and and very high-level software engineering uh, firms and, and author of books but started as a music major and turned into just an amazing Java programmer. Mm-hmm. You know, One of the more, actually two very interesting project managers that I get to work with uh, one has a, a law degree mm-hmm. and is an, is turning into a really excellent project manager. Another one studied anthropology and ur- and urban planning mm-hmm. and is turning out to be really great in her field. You know, a, a BA that I have a lot of contact with, uh, I to say, I think, you know, Faye Thompson over in Ohio where she does the path to agility. Mm-hmm. started out as a lawyer, I moved to BA and she's just phenomenal in this role, mm-hmm. uh, and, and you see this story replays over and over where even pulling people from outside of our field has just, it's brought more diverse ideas. And, and even I think it, it's an infusion of emotional intelligence.
3: It often is an infusion of emotional intelligence. I, I have found similar things to be true. I, you know, my best hires are film students and, and uh, math majors and physicists and, and so on. Um, and it's, it's not CS people. Partly, there is an anti-selection in the high school and undergrad uh, for computers and emotional intelligence and awareness. Those are anti-correlated. Um, and, you know, you get on <laughs> – the reason that I don't use Linux today <laughs> is because back in the day when I was first starting to get into Linux, I, I was trying to get information from, uh, from my – from the people around of How do I get this thing started? And it was frustrating and a pain in the butt and I couldn't get any information. So I looked around online and I found a user group. It was a local user group that they said they would help new people get started. And so I, said, so I sent an email to that group of, hey, I'm getting started. I'm interested in Linux, but I've, although I've got a lot of program, computer background, it's on another operating system. Can I get some help? And I got flamed four times in an hour and I sent back a response that was, bleep, this stuff, I'm never using Linux, and I'm telling that story whenever I can and encouraging everyone else to never use Linux because of the lack of emotional intelligence and awareness in that group. And that really is true in a lot of the open source movement, a lot of parts of the open source movement, um, a lot of the CS undergrad, a lot of these things anti-select for emotional intelligence, emotional awareness. Um, And as a result, yeah, you do get a better result from going outside of our field. Um, the set of skills that are taught in most CS courses and even in most software engineering courses aren't that useful. And besides, as we already covered skills can be learned quickly. Um, so the people that you want, yeah, they're film majors. <laughs> 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 they're negotiators.
1: <laughs> so, so, so Arlo, I know that you you train on both sides of that fence, right? You're mm-hmm. you're part of the industrial logic team. You guys do extensive skill training, and and you're very good at that. Mm-hmm. I also know that you do the emotional intelligence training mm-hmm. and since we're saying that this can be a deficiency, it can be something that places people at a disadvantage, what steps can people take uh, mm-hmm. to improve their emotional intelligence Are their reading materials or their mm-hmm. exercises? What do you think makes or what moves the needle the most for people to start down that path of really uh, getting in touch with, with that aspect of their personality?
3: Yeah, so a couple of resources that I will recommend. Um, first, uh, there's a couple of books, uh, Carla McLaren, um, The Language of Emotions, and <sighs> Empathy, the Art, blah, 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 blah something or other. Um, <laughs> empathy is the big word on that one. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but those are two very good books. Uh, I recommend Language of Emotions first um, for helping you to understand emotions. Um, another really useful thing, the f- first problem that you really that we who are emotionally stunted, and that and certainly was, uh, have is labeling. It's just being able to say what emotion is going on. The second one is, is validating, being able to understand what the value and the valuable information of each emotion is. People often talk about good emotions or bad emotions, and they judge things. As soon as you do that, you're, just, you're in a bad place. There, there, there are no good outcomes. You really need to understand, well, fear is there to help you understand where there's risk. And to help you sort the times that matter from the times that don't (laughs) and the important decisions from those that don't. And then when you have low-grade fear, low-grade fear is called intuition. It's the ability to just give you that instant knowledge of act and here's the act you should do. And sadness is there to help you ground, to help you move away from things that turned out not to work so that you can open space to work on the next thing, to set things down and limit your work in process. Sadness is the core thing that helps you reduce your mental load and work in process in your mind. Getting through that sort of an understanding, language of emotions will help with that. But the first step on that is labeling. And labeling the core protocols is great. So just start every day. And in fact, do it three times a day. Do the uh, emotion-based check-in. Where you go around the group and you talk about, I feel blah because of blah. You know, I feel afraid of this upcoming deadline. Not sure why. Not going to cover it more than that. I just, I'm feeling some fear around this upcoming deadline. I feel angry um, at, the, at the defect we introduced yesterday. It's the same, same sort of defect we've introduced before. We should be better than that. <laughs> I feel sad about the design that didn't work out. Letting it go. Emotion check-in, and you have people go around and just say where they're at. Doing that over a period of time, doing that in a safe space, creating that safe space is a whole separate thing, but doing that in a safe space allows people to really start sensing their own emotions and labeling, and then you can start seeing the value of them. Um, So those are the places that I would start. Once you've got that, you're about 90% of the way towards really actually being able to be emotionally intelligent and operate and manipulate in in that space the rest is practice
2: because once you're able to m- move out of feeling it and into seeing that you're feeling it and seeing what it is you're receiving the signal and by naming it you're practicing receiving the signal and that's what emotions are is heads up something's going on you've begun to identify it now look more closely
3: and it's, and it's not even moving out of feeling it um, part of that's true um, uh, emotions definitely are the signal. I uh, totally agree there um, a signal and a program to act on that signal. But emotions tend to come first light in sort of a flow state, just a light touch. And if you listen to it then, you can act totally w- within the motion. You know I have anger. Anger gives me just a little bit of energy. It tells me that something went wrong, and it gives me a little bit of energy to put that thing to right to 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 be that warrior of justice just for a moment and fix that thing and do more than just fix this bug, but fix the source of that bug that's anger
2: see that ties in beautifully to me with <laughs> when we're talking about uh test driving and refactoring that what I'm doing when I feel like this this isn't quite right that's some kind of emotional response. I don't always know what's wrong with this design. I just know that I feel like something is wrong with this design. Mm-hmm. I have an unease, I have a nervousness i have a, I've been down this path before, and it hurt what is this path and what's a better one?
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Fear is a common good good indicator. Um, anger is a good indicator. Uh, and A number of these things really are. And if you can respond to the emotion when it's in the flow state, it will give you just the amount of energy and insight and whatever that you need to take the action. If you don't respond to it, that's when the mood states and, and Raging Rapids emergency sorts of states happen. It's If your subconscious says, here, I have this pattern, you should use it, it's lovely, and you ignore it. And it says, here, I've got this pattern, you should use it, it's lovely, and you ignore it. And you repeat this a few more times. Then it it gets out the big club and it whaps you over the head. And that's what people feel as anger or sadness or whatever. And it's this this emotion, like when the emotion of anger rolls through you and you are angry, you missed the first 40 times that signal was presented to you. And now it's tied to other things in your past and other stories that are unrelated to what's going on here. And it's pulled together as much energy as it can to try and tell you, there is something wrong here. Go fix it. What happened
2: there is you shipped an emotion in six months rather than in small increments. (laughs) And now you suffer for it.
3: (laughs) That's a very good parallel. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so when you learn to work with the emotions, it's not about getting out of those big emotion states so that you can work. It's about working while you're in and working continuously in the flow of those flowing emotion states. It's those letting the the intuition and subconscious pattern matching that is the strongest part of our brain be your guide. The way it guides you is through the emotions. So you want that connection to be always there. Go hyper-rational and you lose all your ability to decide and to make good calls. You want it there. And you want to be listening to it Every moment, so you don't ship it every six months, like you were saying.
2: And it's easier to steer when it's a small turn.
3: Absolutely.
1: Well, guys, my emotions right now are telling me I'm getting tired.
3: It's done. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I, I do have to say, Arlo, I've, en- I've enjoyed this. Amitai. guys, I think this has been a really fun talk. We we covered probably it's probably the most diverse agenda that we've ever discussed on the podcast, starting at. Agile scaling discussion and getting all the way down to gender issues, which um, and emotional intelligence, which I really appreciate. I think it um,
3: by root of legacy code.
1: <laughs> by root of legacy code,
2: Correct. the obvious connection, of course. <laughs>
1: yeah. I, I I think everyone will understand that connection. Actually, yeah. I think that'll make perfect sense. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, Arlo, I'm but, really uh, happy you brought that agenda. Uh, they were great discussion topics, and they did fit together. And you made Ryan's and my job easy to have a conversation about that stuff. I, I had my eyes open. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you very much. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation.
2: And so, Arlo, at this point, is there anything
1: that you've got going on that you'd like to plug to the listeners? Any conference appearances, any talks, any, anything that you would like to promote? Perhaps a way that people could get a hold of you if they'd like to ask you some questions or continue the conversation.
3: Yeah. So, first and foremost, I want to plug uh, the work that we do at Industrial Logic. Um, we do cultural transformations of large groups. Um, uh, we, we really like 600 person and multi-thousand person organizations. We like, we do the deep tech, all the legacy code stuff and really help people do that. And we do the cultural things. We do the management and power shifting, the engineering. We try and bring the whole package. Like everything that I talked about here. Yeah, we do that. That's the first thing is, is if you are in a situation in which you're not making awesome and you're not one of those top teams in the world, we want to help, uh, give us a call. Um, and so for that, the best contact is my IndustrialLogic email, arlo, A-R-L-O, at industriallogic.com. Get us right into whatever you need to do. We also work with small groups, but uh, big groups are our forte. Also, uh, I blog a fair amount, and I post all those blogs and have occasional other discussions on Twitter. So if you want more thoughts or an ongoing conversation, hit me up on Twitter. Um, I'm at Arlo Belshi and I'm Arlo Belshi just about everywhere. Look at me on GitHub or ArloBelshi.com or at ArloBelshi on Twitter, um, et cetera, et cetera. So feel free to look me up for whichever sort of conversation you want to have.
1: And I'll make sure that links to all of those sites uh, make it into the show notes so that people can easily get a hold of you, Arlo. Amitai, what do you have going on? Anything to plug or anything you'd like to, to wrap up with?
2: couple of quick things. Uh, we talked about refactoring a fair amount. And uh, I write on my website, schmons.com. And there's a blog post from, I believe, last year called, When is Refactoring a Good Decision? I feel like that's on topic for what we talked about. So we can put a link to that. Uh, we also talked about fear and intuition. And so I chose at random that this week's plug for Agile in Three Minutes will be to Episode 7, Fear. And finally, uh, Arlo mentioned Llewellyn Falco's approval tests. And we should put a link to that. That's pretty cool stuff.
1: Yeah. And I should mention Amitai is the creator and host of Agile in Three Minutes, another Agile podcast. Essentially, he takes a single word, turns it into a topic over three minutes and writes Agile poetry. Really is uh, one of my favorite podcasts. He does a beautiful job with it. It is inspiring to listen to three minutes of of Agile beauty. So I will put a, a link to that podcast as well. I think anyone who's interested in in this podcast and the Agile for Humans brand, I think you guys will really enjoy what Amitai has put together over at uh, Agile in Three Minutes. I hope you listen to that as well. And I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. I don't have anything to plug this week. I just want to thank the listeners. This is this month, this podcast will go past the 10,000 download mark. It is a, uh, a huge milestone for a podcast that's only been in existence for around three months. So I just want to thank everybody for listening. And for the feedback, this has been a week, Amitai, you and I were talking about this earlier, where it's just been an outpouring of wonderful feedback from the listeners. Seems like this week we've gotten so many great tweets and other comments that it's just incredibly humbling that what we manage to put together each week is being received, internalized, and then creating value for people. It's very humbling, and I'm very appreciative of just everything that all of you guys, the listeners, have done as far as the feedback and listening and all of that. So... My only comment at the end here is just thank you so much for listening and have a great night. Thanks for listening to Agile for Humans. Let's keep the conversation going. Drop us a
2: question on Twitter at Agile for Humans or visit agileforhumans.com.